Welcome to Lifestyle Solopreneur, the community for entrepreneurs who put lifestyle first. Join your host, Flavia Barris, as she interviews successful lifestyle solopreneurs and shares ideas to help you find the perfect balance between lifestyle, business, and self. Flavia is an attorney, marketing expert, and founder of several online academies. She's been featured in major media, including BBC World News, The Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, ESPN Television, and more. Join us for this episode of Lifestyle Solopreneur. Hey, Lifestyle Solopreneurs. Today, we're speaking with Arye Scheinbein. He is a successful business owner who helps others become successful business owners and entrepreneurs and helps them invest their money intelligently. So what does this mean? He helps people allow their wealth to accumulate so that they can stay focused on what truly matters, which is their business and their mission. Arye, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It really is great to have you because I think the money topic is one that a lot of uh, solopreneurs in particular, I don't want to call it head in the sand syndrome, but there's a lot of avoidance of finance and money issues. I think part of it is because people are afraid that if they talk or plan around money too much, they're going to jinx it and their business won't make money. But I think it's really an important topic. So I'm so happy to have you on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. It's funny that that is your view on why people avoid it, because I think there's lots of different reasons. So it's it's very interesting always to hear why people avoid it, because I, I think they're, part of it is just like anything else, right? What do we procrastinate? We procrastinate things that we don't enjoy or that make us scared or make us nervous. And maybe it's the taboo side of they don't want to jinx it. But it also could be that if you think about people avoiding things, when you're not good at something or you're not yet learned or, and I, I emphasize the word yet, right? Like if you're not yet knowledgeable about something enough, you tend not to want to speak or do the topic or you avoid something that you just doesn't feel comfortable. And I think it's important to highlight that because at the end of the day, if you don't think about it and you don't plan for it, unfortunately, the time is going to come and you're going to be like, oh, I probably should have. And then it's going to be like a, a worse feeling, so to speak. For sure. And then how did you become an expert in finance? Because I know, um, like me, you sort of have a uh, corporate origin and you have now uh, come into your own as more of an entrepreneur. So tell us a little bit about your journey uh, from the beginning of your time in finance to where you are today. Sure. So I guess one of the things that in today's day and age, everything is I know it sounds old of me to say, but like in today's day, like even 10 years ago, the world was such a different place in terms of like the ability to work from home or the ability to work online and things of that nature and be your own boss in an entrepreneurial way. So when I was growing up, I didn't realize it, but I was probably super entrepreneurial even back then in the sense that like, I love playing ball and all different sports, but I also collected like sports cards and the price guides then before they were online were this monthly magazine effectively that would come out. And so because I followed the professional teams, you would see which players were starting to perform really well. And you had a time period though, from the time that the guide would come out till the next guide would come out where if a player was getting hot or really doing well, you could probably estimate that that card value, his rookie card or whatever, was going to do, uh, was going to increase in value. And so even as a kid, like the, the card market, I would do a lot of that. Like I would trade cards that I thought were going to go in, increase in value. And then when the guide came out and confirmed that, I'd either trade out of them or continue to accumulate if I thought they were going to continue to rise. And by the time I was like 
you know, I remember when I was like 10 to 12, my dad would take me to uh, card shows and I would be buying from different dealers and, and things of that nature. But by the time I was 15, I actually was a seller at some of these shows. So I had like a table and I would, I would sell my wares, so to speak. And it didn't really click to me that like, hey, I'm really interested in this from a business perspective. It was just a hobby that I liked, but I did like the money aspect of it. And so I ultimately, you know, went after high school, went to college, got a finance degree. And there it started opening my eyes of to stock market and different things. And I will say like my parents definitely, by the time I was in high school, had talked to me a little bit about stocks and, and mutual funds and things of that nature. But really, I just started reading books and reading at that time, like online blogs and websites and different things to, to educate myself. And ultimately, that was the profession I ultimately went into, uh, went into investment banking and then started working at uh, venture capital firms and private equity firms and hedge funds. And what all those words are basically firms that manage money and that we invest in either publicly traded companies via stocks, like, you know, an Apple stock or Facebook or Amazon, or we would buy and invest in early stage businesses that were not yet public with the hope that we'd grow that business and either take it public or sell it, or a private company that had no intention of ever, you know, going public, but we were going to sell it and things of that nature. So it taught me a lot about business investing finances of a business, how to make a business more valuable. What do people want when they're buying them? What do people want when they're selling them? And ultimately that kind of put me on that, on that path of just understanding like money and you try and translate that into your personal life. Well, I love that you are so young and you're essentially, I mean, not a stockbroker or stock trader, but you were <laughs> taking these cards and you were like anticipating where the quote unquote market will go and investing. And uh, I just love picturing you. I know you now as an adult, so I'm, I'm just picturing you as like a kid, but I'm picturing the same shirt, same glasses, like being <laughs> um, this like little kid. And I had a guest on the podcast. This is a while back. So don't quote me on which, which number or how long ago to look for this episode. But my guest said, you know, if you don't know what you love to do because adulting has just confused your brain, just think back to when you were like seven, eight, nine, ten years old. What was the thing that you loved to do? Like what drew you in? Like where were your interests back then as a kid when you don't yet have uh, hormones yet and you're not just focused on the opposite sex when you're not, you know, school's not really that complicated yet. You don't have those pressures of life. They were like, if you were lucky enough to have a decent childhood where, you know, you, you had everything that you needed as far as like housing and food and all of that, then you probably had that freedom to just do the things you loved. And I mean, if you were just sitting, making Legos every day into these elaborate things, maybe your true passion is architecture or development or building or engineering or design. You know, if you were always just out in like nature, like hiking and you loved planning in your parents' garden. And, you know, maybe you should be a botanist or something that's that's uh, related to, to gardening in some way or, or plants. And maybe for you, I, I love it. And I, I think that really means that you're doing what you were meant to do right now because you are doing something that you did for free as a kid um, just because it was your passion back then. So I absolutely love this story. No, oh, thank you. So for finance, what are some of the key kind of mistakes that you see, especially solopreneurs and entrepreneurs, because that's the majority of listeners of our show, how many entrepreneurs do you see making the same mistake over and over? And it's kind of like that low-hanging fruit. Like it's an easy thing to adjust and fix, but you see it constantly as a mistake that people are making. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think 
I would probably say that there's two, but they're interrelated. And that's why I'm going to use them both. So the first mistake, I'm going to give it a, a broad category name. And that is the mistake that people make is they go under the assumption that the theory should go something like this, build a business, then invest the profits or build a business and then invest for the future or whatever it is, right? And the phrase should be more build a business and invest at the same time. Like the two are not, it's not a linear progression where you go one to the next to the next. It's simultaneously. So while you are building and growing your business, whether you are planning to make this business massive and ultimately sell it or something of that nature, or if you are just building a lifestyle business where you just want to know that, hey, I can do what I want, when I want, how I want, it is important to say, okay, that these businesses are throwing off money that I'm using and however I'm using. Some of it stays in the business to get reinvested for growth. Some of it comes out in the form of distributions, payroll, however you're kind of extracting the cash. I'm not going to get into like a tax discussion here. But when that money comes out of the business into your personal bank account, at that point, that money needs to be growing for you immediately. So I'll tie this to the second mistake, right? So mistake one is that, hey, I'm doing my thing now and I'm growing my business and I'm totally reinvesting always into my business. I'm not worrying about the money growing. So that part I would say is like mistake one, don't wait for that, do it simultaneously. And part number two is that people go under the assumption of like, well, I pull in $10,000 a month in income after taxes, pre-taxes, whatever the number is. And then my bills look like $10,000 a month or $5,000 a month again, or whatever the number is. So I don't have anything to invest. And so therefore, yeah, I'll get to it. I'll get around to it when I make more. And all of, of this kind of comes to one fundamental principle. And it's the one that I call Parkinson's law. So Parkinson's law is not an investment law. It's not, it's, it's just a natural science that we can apply to anything. And that is whatever amount of time or space we give something, that is the amount of time or space it will fill. So for example, if you have a client, you're running your own agency and you have a client and they come to you and they say, all right, I need project X, Y, and Z done, whether you know it's email copy, whether it's a website, whether it's a funnel, whatever it is, irrespective of what it is. They tell you, we need this done and we need it done in the next two weeks. Now in your mind, you're like, normally you would plan for four weeks. And they're like, listen, take it or leave it. We have to have it done in two weeks. You are going to make the decision whether you want to do this or not. So now you say, okay, I can, I'm going to take on this engagement. I'm going to work on this client and I'm going to do it in two weeks. Well, if you take a step back and you're like, well, wait a second, a minute ago, you told me it normally takes four weeks. Now you're going to get in two. Why? Because I've only given you two weeks. And so therefore you are going to compress whatever has to be done into the two weeks. So I gave you the space and the time of two weeks and you are now going to fill it Versus if I gave you the four weeks, you would have taken all four weeks. Well, what the heck would have happened there, right? Like you, you're going to get it done in two weeks, but you normally would have taken four. So the point is, is however much space or time I give something, it's going to fill it. And it's the same with the, the money. If you tell me you're taking home five or $10,000 a month or $1,000 a month, it doesn't matter what the number is. And you're telling me, but like, you know, I pay all my bills or I do all these things. It's simply because you are allowing it to fill that. If I say to you, I'm going to take away 10% of your take-home pay, 
and we're going to invest it and you're not going to get to see it and you're not going to have the chance to do something with it, you're going to be able to make it work on 10% less of what you were making. And if instead we took that money and started investing it, it would be happening and the time space would work, right? So if you needed $5,000, okay, so now you're going to make it work on 4,500. I assure you, you'll make it work. Now, granted, there are going to be some scenarios where you're like, you literally don't have enough. Okay. There's still things you can do, but conceptually, this is a, an achievable plan. And it's a mistake that people make because it's almost like there's pros and cons to the, this business strategy of profit first. If you've ever read the book, if anyone's read Mike McCallowitz's book called Profit First, but he basically says, pay yourself and your business profits before you pay the expenses. And it's the same concept in the sense that if I'm going to take the money off for my investing or for my emergency fund or these things, I take it off first and then I have to work with what's left, the time-space continuum of Parkinson's law. I have read Profit First, phenomenal book. We've mentioned it now and again on the web, on this podcast and on the website and the blog as well, because it's it's a really good concept and everyone should read the book. Don't just take my sort of cliff notes or summarization of it, but basically, yeah, if you you make do with what you have, right? So paychecks come in and most people just find a way to make that paycheck cover what they need to cover. And it's sort of the same with a business. A business earns some revenue and then the owner is like, well, I'll spend that here and this and all these bills. And at the end of the day, there's nothing left over as real profit unless it's earmarked as profit from the beginning, you know, on a percentage basis or some sort of a allocation that you decide ahead of time. And the book takes you through all that. It's a great concept. I've also counseled people before on, I mean, rather than sort of giving yourself a pay cut. And I mean, plenty of people, especially during recessions or people get laid off and then they have to live off savings and they tighten the belt real hard. Or sometimes there's furloughs, there's reduction in pay. During some of the recent years when a company has had trouble, it will actually just give a pay cut across the board to a lot of its employees. And people are somehow surprised, like, I got a pay cut. We panicked, but then we just gave up cable TV. We, you know, cut this out. We started making coffee at home. We did these five other things. And all of a sudden we were okay. Like our life didn't materially change too much and we could now still pay all of our bills. And I I agree with you. I think if someone makes a decision to invest, it's something they already have the room to do. If you're living a comfortable life and you all your needs are pretty much met with housing and food and all of that, then more than likely you can make some small changes and now have some extra money to set aside for investing. Another technique is just tell people, look, next time you get a raise, maybe you get an annual raise or bonuses, is divert your bonuses and your raises to investing or to maybe even just a fund that you're putting aside so you can start a business one day. But that's a way to just keep steady on your current lifestyle by diverting those additional funds. Most people just step up their lifestyle when they get a raise. And so all of a sudden their housing, they'll choose a more expensive place or a more expensive car. But if you avoid that and just divert all of that into your future building account, that's another technique. Yeah. So it's funny because if, if you think about what we're saying, and that is, hey, when I get a raise, my expense line tends to expand. It goes back to Parkinson's law, right? Like I've given it that space now to expand. And it's interesting early on in my career, when I first started working, I did take a similar approach that you had mentioned. And that is I almost profit first hadn't come out yet. The book didn't exist at this time, but I would get a bonus and I created a separate bank account. 
And the first time I created this bank account, it was for large expected expenses that I knew were coming and I wanted to plan for them, whether it was sending my kids to sleepaway camp, whether it was a family vacation or anything of that nature, including large investments I thought may be coming and that kind of thing. And ultimately, then I, I started, I created, when, when I started making more private investments, so not necessarily going into the public markets and things of that nature, I created a separate bank account and siphon off, whether it's from a bonus or it's now you know automatically on a monthly basis, I siphon the money off that way and it sits in a separate account. And then let's say I'm an investor in a apartment building deal. So I, I invest, it comes out of that bank account. And when the distributions, whether they're monthly, quarterly, annually, whatever it is, when they ask for the bank information of where to send those checks, it goes back into that investment bank account. So it doesn't come into my personal, let's call it operating, you know, daily life checking account, whatever it is. And that money is always there for strictly for investing. The one challenge with doing it at a chunk at a time is when you take the bonus and, and granted, if you're doing nothing, this is way better. But the one challenge is, is like, I think one of the magic tricks with investing, the two magic tricks really is dollar cost averaging. So if you're going to be buying something, you, you continuously buy it at a certain interval, at a certain amount of same amount of time, interval, interval, interval. And that way you don't have, you take the emotion out of things, even if you're going to buy Bitcoin, right? Like there's, there are platforms now you could just dollar cost average that every week, every month, whatever it is, it just pulls a little bit and buys you a little bit. And therefore like, you don't feel the emotion of like, oh my goodness, you know, um, the Coinbase stock is up so much today. I don't want to buy it here because it's so expensive. And then next quarter, they, the stock plummets and you're like, oh, the market's falling apart. I don't want to buy it. it it's automatic. And the other thing is, is the earlier you start doing these things, right? The, the magic of compounding, the growth is always going to work to your benefit. So those two things, like if you can do it consistently on a regular basis, the dollar cost averaging and the, the compounding will start earlier. And I find that there's sort of a personality thing. Some people are savers and other people are spenders. And some people are kind of in the middle and don't really go to any extreme or another. So how do you help people that just have that personality where it's just really hard for them to not spend what they have on just ordinary day-to-day -day expenses or big splurges because they got a bonus and they're like, I'm going to go buy, you know, that car I've always wanted, you know, now I have that down payment or this big TV or, you know, the kind of like immediate gratification that you can get that way. Do you think there are certain person, like, do you agree with me? Do you think there's certain yeah. personalities where this uh, comes easily and yeah. others where it's like a real struggle? I totally agree with you. I think different personalities definitely definitely struggle and certain personalities thrive, right? Whether you want to call them a spender or a saver, there's probably something on the Enneagram that will kind of, you know, you can kind of look up your personality type in that way. There's probably something on the Myers-Briggs that can give you a little bit of insight into this. So there is, I don't have any question. I totally agree with what you're saying that certain people. So the hurdle, person who's the saver, the, the challenge with some of those people is they overanalyze, they overthink it, and then they are afraid to actually put some of the money to work because what happens is, is like, oh my gosh, it's down, right? Like I invested in the stock market and it's down. Now, now they're panickers because their personality may be like, I'd rather keep it in the bank. But yet we know that not only is it not growing due to inflation, it's probably losing value. But that spender, let, let's focus on those, those types. I think there's obviously some mindset stuff that people may you know, want to look into and work on. But when you think about this, 
and you're like, okay, but I was really hoping to get this car or I was really hoping to get this, whatever it is, this Gucci bag or whatever. The key thing to think about is why is it that you want that? And like, what, what about it is what you're chasing, right? So we, we know that shopping drives uh, dopamine, right? So we know that like, it's that quick hit that a lot of people get when they get to buy things. So if there's a way to replace that, so I'm not one of these people who are like, oh, you have to budget your life and you have to this and you have to that because that doesn't make anybody feel good. Like, except for like that person who doesn't need much and can get by with whatever, the rest of the world that doesn't, that model doesn't fit. And so I'm not looking to tell people like, hey, you know what? Don't drink the latte every day. Like if that's what makes you happy, then you need to be able to live and and be happy. But we now have to say like, okay, every time I close a new client, I want to buy whatever it is. Or every time I get a raise or a bonus, I want to get this, whatever it is. And I think the idea would be, okay, let us basically split the difference. Half of it goes to the thing you want and half of it goes to the future you, the investing for the future of yourself and your family and whatever it is. And so therefore, like maybe it's every other time you take the money and you put it towards the, you know, the market or real estate or whatever it may be. And then the other times you have to buy something you want or every single time you buy something smaller. Because if you take a step back and you really ask yourself, like, what is it about these things that make you excited? It's probably the dopamine. But if you dig deep and look in yourself, ask yourself, like, how much do you use that item later? So some people, they want nice things but they only want like one of them, right? Like they want that nice bag or the pair of shoes or whatever it is, but they don't need a closet full of them. And that's great because that person, it'll this whole thing will work because like, hey, go treat yourself, get the expensive thing, but you're going to invest the rest. Whereas the problem is where someone has like, hey, I've got 16 pairs of Air Jordans. Okay, now you have a collection, you have a hobby, you have whatever it is, we may need to pair that back and only have eight or make more money so that you can have the 16 and invest or do something differently. Like if you have 16 purses, I don't know how many times can you use slash wear each purse? I mean, I'm, I'm not a female who wears a purse, so I can't really talk to that point. But if it's something that like you're going to use every day and you want high quality and you want a nice watch, okay, I get it. But that doesn't mean that it has to be every single time, if that makes sense. It does. And I think it ends up being sort of like, like working out. Like some people are naturally inclined to be self-motivated and get up, put on the running shoes, go work out, do weightlifting, and they don't necessarily need a personal trainer. But then for other people, they're like, if I go to the gym, I will just look cluelessly at all the equipment and I just, I'm not into it. And I have no idea how to make myself work out in the right way the right amount of time. So I'm going to hire a personal trainer and that person's just going to tell me, do this, do that and watch my performance and give me tips on where I'm going wrong or how I can improve my technique. And I think finance is that way too. Some folks can read a book and then implement and just be off and running on their own. And I think for others, it would really benefit them and their family really. And even just their legacy, even grandkids that haven't been born yet to have someone like you or similar, you know, step in and be that personal trainer, be that coach. 
Yeah, I completely agree with you on both your analogy of training as well as as money. It is like anything else, right? Like it's conditioning, it's training. Some people's mindset need different things. And yeah, it's it's funny. I remember when I first started like exercising and working out, people were like, oh, the hardest thing is to get changed and do it. And I I actually separate those two things. You can get the running shoes on and change. It's the doing that, you know, for sometimes like I can tell you countless times that like I'll get changed, I'll get ready. And then I'll just like lay down on the floor or on a couch or something and then be like, oh, do I really want to go? So it, it is the same thing. It's about motivation, but I agree with you. It's definitely, it's not just about you today. It's about you in the future. It's about your kids, grandchildren, or the legacy. And there's a lot of things that, that depending on your upbringing, you may or may not even know about. And it's a shame if it takes you 20, 30 years later to learn some of these things that, that you know, if you could be educating yourself now, you'd be in such a better position. Totally agree. Now I'm huge on diversification of investments. I'm I'm big on that. I'm sure you are too, but I'm also pretty big on diversification of income. In fact, if anyone wants to go way back and listen to the first episode of this podcast, I talked about my own journey with sometimes in life, if you're someone who's a service provider, a wage earner, if you get sort of taken out of society, in my case, it was in a hospital, you can read about my story or uh, listen to it. But I had to live in a hospital for 26 days. And during that time with no Wi-Fi, no real ability to do any of my quote unquote day job, I had to rely solely on other investments. I had real estate investments at the time. The rents kept coming in. Yay. Luckily, I had royalty income from a book I'd written. I had online courses that I had posted and taught, but didn't require my physical presence. And so I still kept making revenue even when one sort of piece of the pie on my pie chart got wiped out for a month. And so I'm big on diversification of income. And I think you are too, because you're not 100% just a finance guy. Like you do this, but then you also have other businesses. How do you balance all of that? And what are those other businesses? Yeah, sure. I So I, again, I would agree with you. I am a di- believer in diversification. And I do believe though, that like singular focus at the time is critical, right? Like, so if you want, if you have your job or your business, or whatever it is, you need to be singularly focused on executing on that thing until it's working before you kind of jump to the next. Cause otherwise like the diversification becomes like a little bit of lack of, of effort, like something's going to fall down. But to your point, I do believe in multiple streams of income. And I probably, I started that very early on. I remember when I read a book about it and it, it was, it was kind of like a real estate related book, but they were talking about all the different types of real estate ways to make money and, and earn income in it. And so I, I probably started my e-commerce journey very, very early on probably actually like when I first started my professional career, I got married young, fairly young. And what happened was, is uh, we actually were expecting our first child within, you know, a year or so of being married. And my wife was exhausted when at night to just like conk out, you know, like eight, nine o'clock at night. And so here I am, you know, in my twenties, mid twenties and my wife's asleep. So it's not like I'm going to go out and, you know, go hang out. Like I'm, I'm a married guy. I have a kid on the way. So I actually just started, I went back a little bit to my roots at that time and went back into the sports cards market and started buying and selling sports cards in different venues and marketplaces and then reselling them online. Now this whole thing is called arbitrage, but you know, like I knew what I was doing in the sense that, cause like in, in the stock market and in businesses, we do this as well. Like we arbitrage different things. And so 
I was buying wholesale and I was reselling it and I grew my e-commerce business. And then eventually Amazon platform grew and, and I was able to start growing businesses on Amazon. And so I have like a number of e-commerce businesses that I have teams that can that leverage a lot of the stuff and we have grown some brands. So that's like another whole segment that both like I understand how it works. I can advise people on how it works. I help people how it works, but primarily like we do it for ourselves and where it makes sense, like if, if it fits to do some advisory or agency work, we do that as well. But I would say like all along the way, I've always tried and learned different business models and I've always tested things. Like I was like, oh, that, that's an interesting thing. Tested it, saw that it worked and said, oh, you know, that's not an interesting income uh, you know, stream or business approach for me, but I can see how that works. So it's funny you mentioned the books, right? Like, so self-publishing now is a huge industry. I have like a small print-on-demand site that like, again, you don't have to do anything, but you have the design, you have the the words and you get paid small royalties for that. I have, because I've been in the e-commerce space, like there are just a few sites that have, you know, some minor affiliate, affiliate marketing that still generate income. So yeah, if you have the ability to learn the skills and do these things, I'm definitely a proponent of it. But I also believe that you, when you have your main focus, you need to be focused on it. Makes sense. I call them slashies or hyphenates, people who are like, I am yoga studio owner and I have my own line of smoothies and I design t-shirts and you know, this and that slash, 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 or hyphenate, hyphenate. And I'm one of them too, for sure. But I agree. There's um, the things you do have to be compatible, at least in a, like a, time sharing way. Like your your time is your time. So if you're going to have a lot of side hustles, you have to decide ahead of time, what percentage of my time can I devote to the side hustle? So what is something I can do? Because if you pick five things and all of them require you to focus 40 hours a week on them, there just isn't enough of you to go around. Yep. So you either have to delegate better or pick things that are more scalable in general, like from the get-go definitely a print-on-demand business is uh, front-end loaded to come up with designs or you can systematize it and have other people create your designs, you know? And so there's so many ways to strategize how you set up your businesses so that you can actually do them all. People are often surprised, right? At how many things you do, but you're like, no, I make it work. And uh, what are some of your secrets? I mean, are there productivity techniques or software or apps or things that you find help you be able to maintain a slashy hyphen it yeah. So it's funny, like, so with the t-shirt design thing, it's funny. I'm not a designer by any stretch of the imagination, like far from it. Right. So I've had people design. So I think one of the things that I do is I have dedicated time for, you know, a job and, and work. And I definitely dedicate time to my family. And there's, there's time blocking that I do in that sense of like, Hey, this, this time every evening is always family, no matter, no matter what's going on. And, and I'm on the boards of a couple of nonprofits, so they don't get, you can't be in that window. It's always gotta be later. And so I generally look for the later part of the evening. I happen to be personally someone who does well in at night. I can stay up and do these things. And I definitely have a little bit of a, a superpower where I don't need eight hours of sleep. And this is not like a, oh, I'm, I'm like hacking away my life. Like I've, I've studied it. I've tested it. I've tried. I actually do better with probably more in that five, six hour range versus like an eight, nine. I know people would say I'm a liar or they want to test it or like, oh, that doesn't make sense. But like there are people that, that fall into that. But I also don't like I fully go off the grid every weekend 
from like Friday night through Saturday night. I don't do any business during that time. Like that's strictly, you know, personal time, family time, whatever it is. So once you have certain parameters, the hacks become like, okay, time, you can be very rigid or you could be very loose about these things. And like, so for me to tell you, I can tell you some of the things I do, but it won't fit certain personality types. Like some people like to time uh, how long a activity or a task takes. And then they know that they should be doing it at that speed. And if they're not, they're, they're procrastinating or doing something else that's not productive. And I also, I used to, pre-COVID, I would commute to New York City and that commute, I would make sure I was super productive during the commute time, whether it was even just listening to podcasts, uh, whether it was you know catching up on social media time, being that time on the bus, whatever it was. But that way, it wouldn't bleed into other parts. When I listen to podcasts, audiobooks, nothing is done at anything less than a one and a half X speed because it's just the consumption is much much faster, obviously, but at one and a half, you can retain the information. Two, three, four X, like now you're starting to like potentially not. And I think delegation and understanding how to manage teams is a huge thing, like writing systems for everything. So standard operating procedures for a lot of these businesses so that if we're going to plug a new employee in or a team member, I don't have to sit there and train them, right? So we have it in video, we have it in checklist form. We do a lot of these things and that just allows anything to scale and anything to be plugged in for, you know, handoff. Those are great tips. I mean, it's, um, I love just picturing, you know, people who have a commute, use that commute truly. I mean, and if you're not going to be using it to do work or catch up on things, um, at make your commute as relaxing as possible then. So it can be considered, you know, listen to your favorite music or do something of that nature because that we only have so many hours. I mean, it's so interesting. Someone in finance, you look at things numbers wise, like how much some people have more money than others coming in and they can do different things with it. But we all truly start with like that 24 hours a day. And then you're lucky you don't have to devote so many hours to sleep other people need nine hours of sleep. So imagine you know, how much less of a day they really have because they've already spent more of those 24 on just sleep. And we really just have to decide and, and uh, prioritize where we spend those minutes because that's it. And once that day is gone, that day is gone too. And uh, there's a lot of philosophy, right? About where you spend your time and what really matters and, and how you do what you do. But for you, you help people create more freedom in their life through finance, which is a great way to give people some of that time back, even if, you know, on a front-loaded basis, they're investing more of their time to build up that that nest egg or that wealth or that revenue and profit that they can reinvest into things. What do you think is sort of the core of your mission and why you've decided you're not just someone who does finance well for himself, but you are now helping other people with their finance yeah, I think it was watching from the sidelines and seeing how I definitely came with a benefit of like having a professional background in it, but watching people who have seen success in their business, in their entrepreneurial journeys or owning businesses, whatever it may be, or even as an employee, but not getting the education or the opportunity to grow the future for their family themselves it actually just i don't naturally bothered me it felt upsetting that like hey they people need to know certain things and people should be taught certain things and not to rant on you know the college or even high school industry the education industry which is definitely probably something that that could use massive overhaul i'm even next you know next year teaching in a high school a local high school just 
helping them understand like personal finances and investing because I think, and, and entrepreneurial things, because I think kids today definitely need this. And a lot of them already have their ideas or the handle on some of it, but if they had a better framework, they'd even go further. So I think I really respect people who go all in on their business and they have a mission to do whatever it is. They're looking to do good inside their business. And so my view is, hey, I want them focused on their business. I want them focused on their mission of whatever it is. And a lot of times people take their eye off the ball or they get duped or they get this or they get that because naturally anyone who's coming to you to kind of, let's say, offer something, there's usually a backside trade. Meaning like if I come to you and I'm like, hey, you know, it's it's really important that your family is insured. If God forbid something happened to you and I'm probably selling you either, you know, disability insurance, life insurance, some kind of insurance, because like I'm, I'm talking about focus on this. And so the problem though, is, is that person who's focused on that, their objective is to get you to get life insurance, but they don't have a holistic view of everything else going on in your life. And the same with the, let's call it the, the stockbroker at one of the, you know, the bigger firms or midsize firm, whatever it is, they're pushing their product because that's, excuse me, that's ultimately how they're paid. That is how, whether they're commissioned, whether their their salary is driven by how much money they, they bring into the firm, whatever it is, the scope is limited to what they can offer under their current umbrella versus, hey, if someone is going to approach you and say, you should be buying stocks or mutual funds or whatever, or someone is approaching you and is telling you, you should have either whole life insurance or term life insurance, or whatever it is, or someone is telling you, hey, we're going to go fix and flips these houses, or you should be wholesaling, or you should be trading options, or you should this, or you should that. Take a step back and say, well, are you selling me on an idea that I can execute in my day job already? Like, or are you asking for, am I going to create a new job by doing this? Right. Like, so going out and trying to find wholesale properties, that's basically going to be trading my time for, for doing this. Or are you actually like teaching me how to do something passively? And yeah, the word passively, you know, has like different connotations. And, you know, some people say there's nothing that's passive or whatever it is, but if I can help you understand all the things and then basically be agnostic to which way you want to go, if you're like, hey, I love stocks, I don't know anything about it, but it sounds super cool, I want to know, then that's great for you. And you don't have to be distracted by the shiny object over here that is now crypto. And not, I'm not saying you shouldn't have crypto. I'm, I'm more just kind of pointing out that people are always trying to push one agenda. And it bothered me that people just didn't have the information to decide what makes sense for them. And again, to your initial point that you made earlier that, hey, diversification, that's great, but don't just be sold because you're focused on your business. You want to know, like, and trust where you're putting your money for it to grow for the future. I can't have a finance person on the podcast without asking, what is going on with crypto and Bitcoin? Because to me, I'm, I remember when you said some people are more risk averse than others. I'm the risk averse kind. I'm very conservative as far as uh, risk and and finance in general. So I'll, I'm probably one of the ones that researches too much before jumping in anything. You, you okay. were talking about the different personality types. Yep. And for me, I still don't understand Bitcoin or crypto because it really seems high, high risk to me. Like it's more of a collectible that every, everyone's decided, like baseball cards, you know, in a way like this is worth this amount and the scarcity makes it worth more, but it's not actual currency. So you're still giving someone actual currency to buy this like collectible that has value, but it, the value is based on how much other people have of it and how much 
they want and, you know, whether it's scarce or rare or not. So I see it like beanie babies. But you tell me, because I love having someone who's in that field in finance talk about your point of view about this kind of new thing. It's only been around, I don't know how many years, less than a decade, I think. But you tell me. Okay. So we would need an entire podcast episode to kind of get deep in the weeds. So I'm going to try and keep it as high level. Yeah. Um, give us, and, give and, us and, the and synopsis. Yeah. And educational so that it it also brings the value and stuff like that. And so everything I'm saying comes with a, hey, there's a lot more below the surface, but we're going to just do this at a high level. So I will disagree with the comment that Bitcoin or these things are like uh, beanie babies or collectibles. The way to think about that, okay, is that's a little bit more comparable to the NFT market. So the NFT is this non-fungible token. It's basically a one of one. It's a non-replicatable thing. So you have a almost like a collectible, but it's digital. And there's a lot more to it, but I'm, I'm going to like think of that at a, at a very high level. The Bitcoin crypto discussion, Bitcoin is a form of cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency basically as a concept, again, starts with the blockchain. The blockchain is ultimately, it's made up of a lot of computers that are solving mathematical equations and they're in, interlinked. And the reason for it and the push that's being made is that says, why do we need a centralized thing called a bank where they control the rules and regulations around things? Why do I have to trade my stocks at Fidelity and have them register the paperwork? Like there's ultimately, there's a middleman in everything. My bank, I go in, like if you went into your bank today and you said, hey, there's $100,000 in my bank, I want to take it out. They'll be like, I don't have that much cash on hand, maybe. They'll be like, oh, you shouldn't take it out. It's not safe. Oh, you know, we have to fill out this special paperwork because it's over $10,000. Oh, this, oh, that. Like, what's going on? It's your money. You should be able to access it. So the concept of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency off of the blockchain is we have a technology network that everyone can access the record to show that you own something. And there's no reason to have this centralized thing, i.e. a bank or government that is controlling what things are worth. So anytime you have things that of value go up and down, right? Part of it is the supply and demand. And part of it is what a willing buyer and a willing seller is willing to pay for something, right? I have a painting on the wall. You're willing to pay me $10,000. I'm like, okay, I'll part with it. So the idea of, of Bitcoin you know, being a tradable is different in the sense that Bitcoin is the largest currency. It is not in from a market cap perspective. It's it's the biggest one and it was probably, you know, one of the first. The other coins definitely carry more risk, right? So there's the what I would call the, like the large caps, the ethereums of the world and uh even Litecoin is probably one of them. And then even BNB and, and all these different things whereas, you know, these coins that come out of nowhere and they're not, there's no real project. So most of the time, a coin is backed by an actual technological project, what a problem they're trying to solve. And it's, it's effective like a, a currency. It's kind of like, hey, I have Facebook stock. A willing buyer and a willing seller tell me what the percentage, you know, the stock is a representation of a fractional piece of ownership in Facebook, the company. The coins, you can think of it as the same way. You have a fractional ownership in this project. And so some projects may work, some projects may not work. So there's a lot more inherent risk, whereas Ethereum as a technology is definitely going to have a better use case. The question ultimately will become like, okay, will anyone ever pay for something in 
any of these coins. And it's it's too early to know, right? Like nobody should be using Bitcoin as a payment method today simply because there's potentially a lot more upside in the value of Bitcoin relative to you know where it is. I mean, look at it. It's gone up from whatever 30, 35,000 to like 45, 46,000 in the last like 10 days of this recording. And that's after it fell from 65,000, you know, 60, $65,000. So there's a lot of volatility to it. So long story short, think of Bitcoin. I think Michael Saylor, who's the CEO of MicroStrategies and a big Bitcoin proponent, I think the way he explains it is, think of Bitcoin as buying a block in New York City, in Times Square. So you have a big block of property and um, it's a just a big empty area and that is Bitcoin. And then Ethereum is the building inside Times Square. And so now you own a building in there. And then all these other little coins are companies that are going to be working inside the buildings of Ethereum. And each floor is a different business. And so some of these businesses will go out of business. So some of these coins will not work and some of them will not, will be successful. And so you think about it that way. I always want to own the block of property that the building sits on. That's that's Bitcoin. I probably want to own a building. So that's Ethereum. And then some of the companies inside the building, they're going to be successful and some won't. And so not really sure which ones I should or shouldn't buy, but those are the other coins. So I don't know. Hopefully I've, I've given some color and context to help you understand some of this. Yeah. A great way to conceptualize it. And I think that will be helpful to a lot of listeners. So how do people connect with you if they want either to learn more about what you do day to day or to learn more about your investment services? Sure. So the best platform is probably Instagram, Arye the businessman on Instagram. The two websites I would direct people to is either solutionadvisory.com or futurefundme.com. Fantastic. I recommend everyone take some time after listening to this podcast episode to think about your own finance. How are you doing in that world? I mean, are you uh, taking care of your future? Are you being strategic? Are you giving this some thoughts some planning? And if not, then I definitely suggest you reach out to Arye. And even if you have been really good and are one of those people that's a natural investor and saver, I think you should uh, connect with Arye because you never know what more you could learn that will make a huge difference for you, your business, your legacy, and your finances. Thank you, Arye, so much for being a guest on the show today. My pleasure. And thanks for having me. Guess what, lifestyle solopreneurs? If you don't yet have an online business earning you enough passive income to live the life of your dreams, I'd like to suggest you consider trying out Kajabi. Kajabi is an all-in-one solution where you can create and teach online courses, publish a paid newsletter, launch a free or paid podcast, process payments, build one-on-one coaching portals for your clients, and much, much more. I personally use Kajabi to power numerous successful and profitable online businesses. Lifestyle solopreneurs, there's a free trial of Kajabi waiting for you at this link, www.kfreetrial.com. You can try Kajabi for free, no obligation, by going to www.kfreetrial.com. Again, kfreetrial.com, and that K stands for Kajabi. Starting an online business helped me break free from that corporate grind, and I hope it does the same for you. You have nothing to lose and absolutely everything to gain. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and see you next time.